it's just after five o'clock and you're tuned in to this week in moab what an interesting program that we just heard in that last hour we're actually going to continue this conversation about asian american people in the west i had the opportunity to speak with christopher merritt who's the state historic preservation officer for utah and i wanted to talk to him because he recently led this really interesting excavation project on a transcontinental railroad site at Terrace, Utah. And that's way up north, way up in Box Elder County, Utah. But the project is so interesting. It's part of um, something called a Passport in Time program that the state has, which sort of leverages volunteers to assist federal land managers in historic preservation. So in mid-May, the Bureau of Land Management, the State Historic Preservation Office, and the Chinese Railroad Workers Descendants Association basically organized this big team of volunteers to conduct this excavation. And it was the first scientific investigation of a railroad town in Utah, which focuses on the lives and homes of Chinese railroad workers. Um, Such an interesting conversation, such an interesting excavation. Um, So we've got Chris Merritt, who, again, I spoke with earlier this month about this project and its significance for Utah, its significance for Uh, descendants of Chinese railroad workers and kind of placing it in context. I do want to say that during the interview, Christopher Merritt kind of references Terrace, Utah. So for those who may not know, which I didn't, um, but one of the largest town sites along uh, this particular segment of railroad was uh, the town site of Terrace. And it was founded in 1869 and once boasted a population of about a thousand inhabitants during the late 1880s, early 1890s. So the project that we're about to talk about with Chris, you know, expanded on previous excavations Uh, and looked into life at Terrace for Chinese workers who lived there in the 19th century. So that's the context before we start the conversation. Let's get into it now. You're listening to KZMU, and it's This Week in Moab. So my name is Chris Merritt, M-E-R-I-T-T, and my official title is State Historic Preservation Officer uh, for the state of Utah, and I work for the Utah Division of State History. So what is a, a Utah, what does a historic preservation officer do? Uh, good question. So all 50 states, uh, most of the territories have a SHPO office, an SHPO, which is State Historic Preservation Office. And it was set up by the 1966 Historic Preservation Act, federal, uh, to sort of orchestrate and coordinate local preservation efforts at the state level. And so my office uh, works with every state and federal agency to make sure they're complying with state and federal law for protecting of cultural resources, archaeology, and buildings. Uh, But also we have a bunch of other programs that spur preservation. So we have local government programs. We give grants to local communities to do preservation projects like building rehab or or architectural surveys. We manage a tax credit program, which spurs people that own historic homes or businesses to fix them up and preserve them. And so um, I have about 13 permanent staff and a a little cadre of uh, part-time folks that work with me. And Elizabeth is our public outreach wing. Uh, for archaeology in particular. 
but we just started last year um, cultural site stewardship program, which is connecting volunteers to sensitive archaeological sites to help our, our public land managers uh, get more eyes on the ground, get more folks monitoring these, you know, very fragile cultural resources. So um, I have a pretty bureaucratic job most of the time, uh, but it is pretty fun because I get to see archaeology from across the entire state. We have a statewide reach. So, you know, we get a report from Moab and then we get a report from Box Elder County and helping a community in Daggett County and then helping a homeowner in Panguitch. So it's kind of cool to have this very statewide perspective. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. I had no idea that it encompassed so much. You know, when I think of historic preservation, yeah, that's true. I guess old homes come to mind, historic homes, Um, you know, archaeological resources come to mind. Why do you, why is preservation to you so important? Well, I I believe I go right back to the 1966 Act, is that it's in the best interest of all of Americans' publics um, to preserve and interpret our past. And so these historic buildings, these archaeological resources are the physical reminders of the past. And if we continue to lose them, if they get altered, if they get destroyed, we lose those small pages of history that has made us who we are, whether it's pretty or whether it's ugly. Uh, Preservation is trying to capture all those narratives and all those stories and make sure that the next generation can look back at, you know, something you and I grew up with and say, well, that was interesting. Um, and, And so it just kind of builds upon itself and to think about it in a sense of, we're all in this together. We need to jointly figure out what's worth preserving, what's not worth preserving, what's interpreting, what's not interpreting. Um, it feels like a war of attrition many days because there's so much pressure for development. There's so much pressure to modernize. And that's why I kind of like the law, though, is it tries to balance. It tries to find that nice middle ground between the need to continue mm-hmm. and the need to preserve. It's a very interesting job. Sometimes it's a frustrating job, but, you know, to me, preservation is critical to keep our communities feeling that connection to history. Now tell us a little bit about this excavation in particular. I don't think it's really has a official name or does it, Chris? (laughs) So the official name, we'll call it the uh, Terrace Transcontinental Railroad Workers Camp Excavation. That's a mouthful, but um, realistically, it is the first scientific uh, archaeological investigation of Chinese railroad workers camps here in Utah in particular. Uh, and so the project has a long history and I'll try to boil it down is um, in the buildup to the 150th anniversary of the driving of the golden spike that we celebrated in 2019. Unless you lived under a rock, you saw this come to the Shippo's office, the Bureau of Land Management and Spike 150 and the Chinese Railroad Workers Descendant Association all started collaborating to tell a more holistic story this time around than what was done in 1869, celebrated in 1969. And so 2019, we wanted to tell a much more cohesive story of the transcontinental railroad, a much more inclusive story. And starting back in 2018, we started taking members of the public, the Senate community members out to this very unique landscape in Western Box Elder County. Mm-hmm. Now, your listeners might not know where Box Elder County is, but they might know where Brigham City is or the Golden Spike. Uh, it's the very Northwestern County in Utah. Okay. And we are pretty lucky. Utah has a national treasure in this very remote part of the state. 
Uh, so we all know the story, 1869, railroads finished, yay, all the you know, rich white folks got their photos taken on May 10th while everybody else was back working. Mm-hmm. Um, but that line operated from 1869 until 1942. And so from basically the Western Nevada border up around the North arm of the Great Salt Lake into Corinne, uh, which is just east of Golden Spike, that was an active railroad line for almost 70 years. Well, in 1904, the Southern Pacific Railroad, who had taken over operations from the Central and Union Pacific on that line, they decided to go straight across the lake, the Great Salt Lake. And that was meant to remove a bunch of obstacles like big passes. They could make trains go faster, which was always better. And so from 1904 to 1942, this northern arm, what we call the promontory branch or route of the Transcontinental Railroad, became less and less used. Uh, It was used for locals, ranchers, moving a little bit of freight in and out of that landscape. But by 1942, the federal government and the railroads agreed that it was time to abandon. So in 1942, rail ripped up. Uh, It was melted down for use in World War II or reused actually in the Ogden Defense Depot uh, for interior railroad lines there in Ogden. And then from 1942, the ties were taken off and it was used as a county road. Now, fast forward all the way to the 1980s mm-hmm. is the, the whole idea of the Railroad Grant Act in 1862 is that we'll give it to the railroads, but once they're done with it, it's supposed to revert back to the feds, back to the federal government who gave it to them in trust. Mm-hmm. Well, it took until the 1980s for a lot of this land to be converted back to federal management. Mm-hmm. And so really since about 1988, this 87 miles of original transcontinental railroad grade has been managed by the Bureau of Land Management out of the Salt Lake Field Office. And that's pretty impressive, 87 contiguous miles. And you can drive its entirety. Mm. Uh, So if you go to Golden Spike, you can actually drive all the way to Nevada on the original railroad grade, which is crazy. Wow. Um, If you look east or west of Utah, the original transcontinental line has been upgraded. It's been straightened. It's still an active railroad line. Mm -hmm. So this is a long way to answer your question. Why the heck are we up there? Is because of its abandonment, it is a time capsule. It hasn't really seen development, housing, you know, blitzing of any kind. And so it's just been allowed to kind of return back to its natural state. And that is pretty exciting to an archaeologist. And so when we started doing some inventory work out there looking for archaeology, there was all sorts of really cool stories still on the ground and all these workers camps from construction. But then, you know, the story we were really concerned that people wouldn't realize is like May 10th, high five. Yay, we're all celebrating. Well, that was just the kickoff for 70 years of active railroading in this landscape. How about the people that lived and worked and died and, and raised families on that 87 miles that's now under federal management? Wow. And working with the Chinese descendant community was really powerful for us. Um, I, I did my dissertation at the University of Montana, studying the Chinese experience up there. And so when I came to Utah, I'm like, this is, we have the Transcon. We have 13,000 Chinese workers that were employed to build this puppy. Um, we're going to have tons of information, tons of stories. And it's just not really the case. There's a lot of railroad histories focused on the big four, or, you know, the Stanford, the Crockers, um, even Brigham Young and, and the LDS contribution to the construction. But the, the workers, the Irish, the Native American, the Chinese, and you know, all these other groups kind of got lost. That's where archaeology fills the gap. 
is that we can fill in what history books have omitted. It's really exciting. And when we uh, took some tours, it was one of the largest towns in Box Elder County, 1870, about 800 to 1,000 people at its peak. It was a railroad maintenance shop, um, had a turntable, had a roundhouse, had a main street, uh, had a Chinatown in 1870. But by 1900, it had disappeared from the landscape just because railroads started shifting towards a loose end cutoff and moving operations to get prepared for that. And so almost boom and bust is a, a mining town kind of story of like it boomed 1869, busted by 1900. And when we walked around, this is the richest archaeological site from the historic period I've ever been on. Uh, there's no centralized trash. Everyone just chucked their garbage out the, the window. And there's not a lot of soil buildup. And so you could very clearly see Chinatown. So in 1870 census, the Chinese component of Terrace was the third largest Chinatown in the entire state of Utah. Now, that, that seems staggering, but when we're talking little under 60 people, maybe not that big, but still an impressive story. that's now been completely gone back to the sand dunes and greasewood. Mm -hmm. And when you're standing there, you get to see imported porcelains that were the Chinese bringing from China to use as tableware, different patterns, mm -hmm. uh, lots of stoneware vessels that they brought soy sauce in, they brought pickled eggs and, and dates and olives and uh, ginger jars and liquor jars, all imported from China to build this sort of traditional foodways and the sort of comfort of home in the absolute middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, the only real connection to the outside world was the railroad that ran through the center of town. Wow. And when we brought the Chinese community, including state representative Karen Kwan, who has, uh, she's our first state representative that's a Chinese American. She has a personal connection. She has a great, great grandfather that had stock in the Central Pacific Railroad, and he probably worked down the railroad. Her late brother, Judge Michael Kwan, just passed last year. He was the driving force for the Chinese Railroad Workers Descendant Association. He was the first Chinese American judge in the state of Utah history. And so, you know, all these great people are like, we want to save our history. We want to protect our history. We want, we want to learn more about our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And to an archaeologist, that is exciting, right? That so much of archaeology, we do important work, but this is meaningful work. This is reconstructing a narrative that's been destroyed, that's right. been ignored, um, that's been systematically excluded from history books, mm -hmm. and also been badly looted and vandalized. Now, in, in your neck of the wood in Moab, we, I, we know there's been some pretty bad acts of vandalism on petroglyphs in the last month, um, but we have a long history of destruction of cultural patrimony of others in our, in our state and beyond. And this site, because of bottle hunters and people looking for shiny goodies, they were out there systematically destroying what, oh yeah, it's just old bottles, it's old cans, it's old you know, things. Well, to the Chinese community, that is the only physical heritage that they have left connecting the present to the past on the ground. And so it's more than just taking a bottle, it's taking a page out of their heritage, a page out of their history. And so all these things coalesced. Once we saw the excitement of the descendant community, uh, we organized this field experience we did a short test last fall during the pandemic, and then we came back with a bigger crew and did a much more extensive excavation this time in 2021. And the whole target was to focus on Chinatown, 
to reconstruct whatever we could get out of this landscape. And I'm pretty stoked to say that with eight volunteers from Michigan, Idaho, Oregon, California, Nevada, and Utah, we were able to open up an entire Chinese house, probably built between 1869 and 1870 uh, with intact floorboards, with intact wall boards, with redwood and dug fir, all the stuff you would never see in the desert, but you're on the railroad. You're getting all those railroad surplus. Mm-hmm. And so this is the first fully open Chinese railroad workers home in the entire United States. Wow. Um, you know, some have been tested, but we opened it up entirely. It had been pot hunted. It had been vandalized, but there's still a lot of information. And it was pretty exciting to see construction style. You know, what did the Chinese build homes in this community? They knew they were going to be there for a while. So you see the investment. So we found tableware. We found different styles of Chinese porcelain. Um, so this is, would have been the homeowner's table settings. Mm-hmm. And it went from the very poor, cheap, durable bamboo style wear, which most workers would have had. It was cheap. It was durable. You'd eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner out of it, mm-hmm. all the way up to flat bottom spoons with hand-painted flower patterns, like you would see in a modern Chinese restaurant today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see all these imported jars. The two cool little sectors that we had is the preservation out here is incredible. And so we actually got, uh, we recovered peanut shells, coconut husk, olive pits, uh, pumpkin seeds. So these are 150-year-old organic matter that had been laying in the sand dune since those Chinese residents left when, when Terrace fell finally during the end of its days. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one artifact that was really exciting, and I, I made a lot of point of showing this to folks, is... Chinese inkstone. And I, I credit my volunteers for this because if you saw it from the, ups, the underside, it looked like a broken rock. You flip it over, it's hand carved. And if the listeners are out there thinking about your exposure to Chinese calligraphy or mm-hmm. ink uh, painting, mm-hmm. well, think about how you make that. And traditionally, the Chinese would have a solid block of ink and you would have this little stone tablet, mix a little bit of water, and then you grind the ink and the water together to get ink to paint and to draw and to calligraphy. That's what we found in this house. Wow. So that attacks stereotypes that has been built up for years that the Chinese here were illiterate. They were poor. They were uneducated. Like, no. Someone was writing. Someone was sitting in that house in the 1870s writing letters perhaps back home to the families they left behind and they might never have saw again. They might've been keeping records of pay or uh, books or who knows what, Um, but that it it turns our head away from this grinding life of a railroad worker to a more full experience of what that would have been like, Uh, that full human interaction, not just the, the stereotypical box we like to put people into. Uh, eating traditional food, doing traditional calligraphy. We found gaming pieces from traditional Chinese games. It's like these are people. They're not caricatures. And those artifacts, those little pieces all kind of coalesce to tell us that. Um, The last big fun thing, we were able to get Lieutenant Governor Henderson out. She dug for a while. She screened for a while. 
Um, we had two state representatives, including Karen Kwan, come out. We had BLM management come out. But to me, that is the one of the biggest impacts is to get people on the ground to understand how important these stories are. And, and elected officials are one of those folks that could spell the fate of some of these sites through decisions in Congress, federal or local legislature, right? That to, to make them feel this connection is really important for the broader part of preservation. And then the capstone was the Chinese descendant community before we backfill. All archaeologists, once we get done digging, put the dirt back in so it can be preserved and in place. And the Chinese community did an offering to the ancestors because we are telling their story, not my story. We're telling the story of the people that passed and how that can help the Chinese community today connect with that history, but also hack this anti-Asian violence we're seeing across the United States um, is, is thinking about these people as human, not caricatures, removing mystery, removing that fear. Like, no, they're just, they're just people. They were drinking out of a spoon, same as you and I. They were out here working hard day labor and 90 degree heat and 60 mile an hour winds, same as we got pelted with for a week camping out there. Um, and so, you know, it all really dovetailed nice to, to do archaeology, but to also make it really important um, towards 21st century America and trying to attack some of these things we're seeing in the press. That's so powerful. This history, this is so important. This work is so important. As, as you're talking to him, Thinking about, you know, not uncovering these artifacts, people are able to fill in their own blanks, right? Fill in the stereotypes of a Chinese worker and whoever's telling that story, whoever's, you know, in the position of power and privilege. But now that uh, these stories can be uncovered, you have a fuller picture of who these people were. um, And they're not what uh, people in positions of power um, would like to say they were. Absolutely. And, and I've always stood that good history and good archaeology is apolitical. Facts should speak for themselves. You know, we use you know, loaded language today, of like power structure, and some people wince like, oh, no, we're revising history. I'm like, no, that's just the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason that the Chinese aren't in history books in the way we expect. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that the Chinese didn't have names in the Central Pacific log books, <laughs> Yeah, we're paying them by the lot because we didn't value them much more than that, other than just the, the sheer brute force. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, these are these are important stories to be shared um, and and dispel myths. I think a, a, probably a lot of your listeners, when they think of Chinese in the 19th century, they equate that directly to opium. Mm-hmm. The use of opium was much similar to how many European Americans used alcohol. It was mm-hmm. a recreational. It was used as a communal setting. It was used as a way to pain relief. Think about how many people have opiates right now for knee pain or back pain. Yeah. It's the same thing. Swinging an eight-pound sled for 10 hours a day and hauling a 500-piece of steel rail, you're going to be sore, people. And so if we're using opiates in 2021 to take care of pain, is that so dissimilar yeah. of the Chinese smoking opium in the 19th century? Now- you know, earlier you said that this was the first scientific excavation of a of Chinese railroad worker history in Utah. Do you have, I'm sure you have knowledge of other excavations in the West? Have, have those occurred? Yeah, there's, there's been some limited excavations um, in Evanston, around Evanston, Wyoming, on the old transcontinental line, some simple testing, a little bit over in Nevada, a little bit in the Sierras. But as far as like a full open up a house, 
you know, wall to wall, the floorboard, uh, we're the first that I'm aware of on, on the railroad. And, you know, the Chinese have such a fundamental part of Western American history um, that, you know, the work I did up in Montana, we were excavated a restaurant and a laundry and mining camps. Um, but down in Utah, the, the, the contribution was largely the railroad and then the smaller urban Chinatowns that we had in Ogden and Salt Lake City. But this is the other part of, you know, I would almost call it like a structural violence is that we have destroyed the original Chinatown in Salt Lake City. It has been urban renewaled to a point that it no longer exists. Right. Same in Ogden. And so if you fundamentally remove somebody's history from the physical landscape, that is an act of erasure of a, a contribution of an entire population. And so that's why this is such a powerful thing to highlight this story. Like everything's still here. The people are still here. The stories are still here. Um, and that's what's exciting. Yeah. And it's so unique. And you described this at, at the beginning of why it was sort of left in place um, and how it didn't suffer development as um, so many other places have. It's really unique. It is an absolute time capsule. And um, other than the, the looting and vandalism that's occurred out there, uh, drive that grade at 20 miles an hour, a little under, kind of like a steam train would have been cruising across that landscape. It doesn't feel that far from 1869, to be honest. You know, no cell phone towers, no houses, no power lines. Um, there's 30 miles where you don't see another human, you know, construction. And think about our modern society. That's a rare thing. Uh, and so it's an, an easy way to transport you 150 years in the past without really hardly trying because the landscape is just so in your face. And it's much different than, you know, Canyon country. Uh, you know, it's open. It's wide. On a good day, I can see 130 miles from the railroad grade to Mount Timpanogos because you're in the Great Salt Lake Desert looking over Great Salt Lake. Um, the landscape is overwhelming <laughs> on many levels. Um, now you mentioned this and help me understand this point. You know, you said that the excavation was then filled back in. Can you tell us why you do that? You know, I feel like me and other listeners who might be ignorant of the process would be like, whoa, you know, you can't, why don't you put a museum out there? <laughs> you know. Um, so tell us about that. Yeah, the, the nature of archaeology, we're destructive. You know, to, to do our work, we have to damage the thing we study. And so everything we do is meant to preserve what we do damage and then preserve what we don't for the next generation, the next wave of researchers. And so any good archaeologist will backfill the holes once we're done. And so that means take all the dirt that you just spent all those hours screening and shoveling and put it back in. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do that is to preserve in place. And yeah. so the, the floorboards we expose, the vertical posts of the wall, if we left that open, one, there would be a signal to potentially looters and vandals that maybe this is a great place to go dig. Mm -hmm. Secondarily, that will further degrade the wind, the, the rain, the moisture, the rodents. If we don't backfill that, we're just speeding up its destruction. And if we are being good stewards of the past, we've done what we needed to do to get the information. But the next step is to make sure that it's preserved as best as we can possibly do. Now, the question of like, let's do a museum. Uh, it's a great Indiana Jones quote, right? You know, it belongs in a museum. Um, when you live and work in such an austere environment in the middle of nowhere, 
you know, there's no easy way to protect those places, to interpret those spaces. Um, and is there a better way to do that than leaving something so fragile and so significant open to the ravages of time? Um, and so we are thinking creatively of what that interpretation is going to look like, uh, maybe investment in additional interpretive signage, maybe ghost framing the house that we've excavated, but still leave it buried because it, it balances, right? We want to preserve this thing that we've learned so much from, but we want the public to enjoy and learn from it and have the Chinese community continue to feel that connection. And so that's the next step for us is one, we recover all this stuff that we need to analyze and write about and photograph and do presentations on, uh, which I've done some at the Mick and Moab before. It'd be nice to come down again mm -hmm. uh, with some of these results, but how do we then preserve this site for the next generation? So this generation can learn from the next uh, and vice versa. So it's a, it's a big task, but I think, you know, the exposure of this radio spot will help people continue to care which is kind of the thing is hopefully it's not just an archaeologist in the Chinese community in Utah that care about telling this story. Yeah, preservation in place. I'm glad you mentioned that phrase because that's something that we, you know, encounter a lot when we're talking about Bears Ears National Monument also and um, the tensions between um, visitation and people who might be ignorant of leave no trace principles <laughs> or you know having a little bit more nefarious intentions with our, our resources too so that's that's those are uh, tight tight ropes to walk it, it's a full spectrum because there's there's so much fun to see so many cool discoveries to make but if if we don't take the ownership of protecting these places in place no one will that's kind of the dire message is that we need to be the stewards we can't rely on somebody else to be the stewards we can't rely on the blm or the forest service or the tribes this is a collective responsibility to protect these places and the best place honestly for this is in the place that they were left um you know many native american tribes are now pushing for you know limiting excavation by archaeologists limiting disturbance of these sites because they are you know, part of their connected heritage. And I don't want to keep you on the Zoom forever, but I do, you mentioned, you know, papers to be written, uh, you know, stuff to be cataloged. What's happening next uh, with the information that you've collected and, and will there be, you know, more excavations, more, more things to uncover? Great question. And the archaeology that most members of the public see is the sexy stuff on History Channel or Oak Island. We're like, oh, look at all this digging. Yeah. Like, that is such a small part of what we do. Um, the week that we spent out excavating is probably going to translate into months of um, analysis and cleaning and um, mending of different ceramic fragments and tons of work. And then that's just the analysis and writing and Reporting. Um, it's a very lengthy and time-consuming process. But again, it goes back to what I said earlier. We do a destructive science. That it's our responsibility to make sure we follow all those loops, tie everything down, write everything down, because we just destroyed it um, mm -hmm. for the next generation. So long-term, long-term, you know, we're hoping to get some academic articles published. I'm always a big, big advocate. I, honestly, I don't like writing for academics anymore because <laughs> they're they're annoying. And it's also not the people that I feel should be the ones learning the most from this anymore, that we need to be writing to the public um, as our primary goal. So I'll be writing some sort of more public-oriented materials, blog posts, uh, more of a public-oriented sort of a article. Um, and then 
even longer term. Where do we want this stuff to go? And so the state of Utah is the only state in the United States that has no repository, no museum for historic period collections from archaeological sites on public land, federal land. Um, Natural History Museum has a very limited scope of collections to Native American period material. And so that means where does this stuff go? And that has really hindered the development of historical archaeology in the state of Utah, because how could you do work if you can't put it in a museum or put it in a repository? But the state's fixing that. Mm -hmm. Um, The exciting news, and I I think we're allowed to kind of start tempting around it, is the Museum of Utah is coming and Mm -hmm. it's going to be built up on the state of Utah's Capitol Hill. It's Mm going to replace one of the uh, more mid-century modern buildings up there. And this building will have that repository for historic period materials. And it will have that venue to teach the story that we spent so much blood and sweat recovering, to teach it to every school group that wanders through that museum. It's like, let's learn about the Chinese railroad workers, not from photos or even the photos they were exempted from, the famous champagne photo. But this is their food. This is what they had on their table. This is what they ate. How does that reflect on your life and your expectation and what you have in the pantry? Those are experiential learning that makes kids connect abstract history to their own personal lives. And that's why I've always gone into archaeology. I didn't go in archaeology to sit in the archives and look at dusty books. I came to go find it, touch it, lick it, and then connect it to people's experiences. Um, And so the museum um, that's going to hopefully be open by 20, 2025, um, will have this component of that history, telling all of Utah's stories, not just narrow slices. This is so cool. You know, you're reminding me, I cannot remember the town, but it was a small town in Wyoming a couple years ago that I visited on my way to somewhere else. And they had a tiny museum. I, you know, I was I went to kill like an hour or so, and there was mostly mining history, but in the back... They had um, Chinese workers' history, and they had, like, a couple different artifacts, and they had some shoes, some clothing. Like, I'm, you know, over 30 years old, and me seeing these artifacts was so helpful for my understanding of who is here in these places. I thought that, you know, really helped paint a broader understanding of stories that to this day haven't really um, been widely told. Well, there's, there's no replacement or this thing that I can almost touch was mm-hmm. owned by this person that I never met. And the only way I can get from one to the other is history and interpretation and lived experience. And that's why physical objects are so powerful. We're, we're humans. Our lizard brain just likes to touch and, and explore. And, mm-hmm. and that's why these things are so important. Now, finally, you know, as far as the research that um, is being done uh, with the, the Chinese workers um, in Utah. How do you think that's going to place in the larger story of Chinese immigrants who did so much in the 1800s? Well, we're, we're putting one brick in the wall um, okay. as, we, as we speak of scholarship is now that we have this little sample data set, we have a better understanding of what they lived in. How did they live? What did they eat? What did they bring with them? How did it relate to the white side of town? And then if we can go back and do additional work, we can keep building that wall and then connecting like what did the workers experience here in Utah look like compared to the Chinese worker on the Northern Pacific up in Montana? Um, how did this all fit into that, that period of 
massive wave of Chinese immigration met by 1882 with the Exclusion Act, the first federal legislation barring an entire nationality from immigrating to our country. Like, how did this all intersect? How did this feed into the 1880s wave of violence against Chinese Americans? Um, it, it, it fits. It, 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 the terrorist story is one small part of a larger organism of history. Um, but we can learn a lot from this one piece and then start comparing it to other lives. And, you know, we get stuck. We get stuck thinking that all Chinese people are Chinese people. Like, no, there's a lot of ethnic diversity in China. And the, many of the Chinese immigrants that came from South China in this period were, you know, avoiding famine and civil war and, and dispossession of land. It was a hodgepodge. It was many different ethnicities, religions, clans all getting on a boat and going to this foreign weird land where everybody hated them. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we've gotten a good understanding of the basics of Chinese history and archaeology in the country, but let's start peeling apart the frictions inside the Chinese community or the, the contradictions inside the Chinese community. Now that we have that bigger arena, because these people aren't just monolithic, they're very different. And so dig, 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 dig to get those deeper stories. Well, thank you so much, Chris. You know, is there anything else that you think is worth mentioning at this point? Um, no, I just, I just think that uh, you know, we all, we all play a collective role in, in protecting and stewarding this history. And and while you might not be able to come to Western Boxelder County and explore that history, protect the stuff in your backyard. Interpret the stuff in your backyard. We're all here to protect it. We all need to be working together to protect the past for everybody's benefit. That was Christopher Merritt. State Historic Preservation Officer for Utah. We were talking about the terrace excavation that took place mid-May uh, that provided uh, a lot of new insights for and about uh, Chinese railroad workers in the 19th century here in Utah. Such an interesting project. Um, Chris provided with me with uh, resources in case anybody wants to learn more. I'll actually include a PDF of a paper that he published with a man named Michael Polk, and the paper is called Rails East to Ogden, Utah's Transcontinental Story. It can provide a little bit more context on uh, the archaeological look at Utah's portion of the Transcontinental from Ogden to Nevada. Um, very comprehensive, very historical. Thanks to Chris for uh, taking time on this subject, and we look forward to hearing more about uh, this project and this research as they sort of sort through it in the coming weeks and months. <laughs>